This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Gerald Fine is a hedge fund pioneer in 1967 at the age of 24. Three years after graduating from here at the Wharton School, he teamed up with fellow Penn grads Michael Steinhardt and Howard Berkowitz to co-found Steinhardt, Fine, and Berkowitz & Company, one of Wall Street's most successful hedge funds. In 1976, Fine launched Charter Oak Partner Management. He converted it into a family office in 2014 and set out to pursue his next calling as a novelist. Fine's debut novel, Make Me Even and I'll Never Gamble Again, has just been published. And it's a pleasure to have him joining us in studio to talk about the book. And also joining us here in studio, Knowledge of Wharton's editor-in-chief, Mukul Pandya. Gerald, great to have you with us today. Thank you very much for coming in. It's great to be back. Just walking the campus is very energizing. Thank you very much. Mukul, great seeing you. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. So I guess let's start out with the idea of why do a book in general and why do a novel in the first place? Well, I needed a challenge. I've been running money for all those years, and I enjoyed that, and I didn't want to totally give it up. Um, I've always viewed myself as a storyteller. I've told my children stories every night, created characters for them, and lasted years. Um, and I, the, the concept of writing a novel appealed to me. I didn't want it to be autobiographical. I didn't want it to be uh, the Jerry Fine story. Yeah. I, I find that sort of tasteless, to tell you the truth. You know, one more story about someone who's pounding his chest. You Look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. Uh, but I wanted to tell the story of the 70s and 80s, which I thought were uh, had a lot of color. And I wanted to tell talk about a disruptor. And uh, But I didn't want it to be me. And lo and behold, um, this character came to me. Uh, and it's uh, I still wonder how and why, but he did. And uh, I must say it, it accelerated to the day and night. And once I started grasping uh, his complexity and started working on him uh, to the point that I literally had a, uh, a flashlight and a yellow pad and a pen next to my bed and just <laughs> because he wouldn't stay away from me. He just kept coming. He almost demanded that I do it. Roger Stout is the character you talk about. So give us a little insight as to what makes him up. He is an uh, extraordinarily intelligent young man. Uh, who lost his mother at a very young age and has faint memories of her, but it keeps uh, the theme keeps going through the book as he tries to remember it. Right. Um, and that's something where he'll never get even, getting back to the title of the book. Uh, he's close to his father, who's a doctor, but his father has committed his career. He's really on his own, and he's um, apathetic. He's really going nowhere. He loves gambling. He loves baseball. One, he's good at the first. The second, he's mediocre at best. Yeah. Uh, but he yearns to be good. And his father puts it to him right at the beginning of the book. Uh, you've got to shape up. You've got to do something here. Um, he looked around for an excuse, like most 16-year-olds, <laughs> probably like those of us in this room. Yes. <laughs> and uh, there was no out in his mind. And he doesn't like lying, especially to his father. So he makes a commitment. And that's where the book really starts. Uh, and lo and behold, he uh, talks his way into an internship at an investment bank uh, and gets a job, a summer job, but it's in corporate finance. And he's bored out of his mind. He can just do these things with his eyes closed. He's very, very smart and yeah. very agile in math. And one day, and this is a turning point in the book, he gets invited down to the trading room and just listening to the sounds and watching what's going on. He can, feed it, he can feel his pulse rising. 
and he takes off and he commits that he's going to really make something of himself. Um, the Wharton School is mentioned to him. He researches that, realizes it's a perfect place for him, especially the undergraduate program where he can run fast. Um, and this, the book is in three parts. The first part is is sort of coming of age part. Yeah. Second part is his four years here and how that transforms him. Um, and the third part is he then moves on to Wall Street in his quest for what he calls independence. And independence to him is enough money that he can step back and analyze his life and where is he going to go from here. So even though uh, this is not autobiographical, Jerry, you said that uh, it's not autobiography, but there are some elements of Rogers' journey that uh, sort of parallel to yours, uh, uh, especially the part at Wharton. I was wondering how his experience at Wharton compares with yours. Um, I would say quite similar. Um, We both were pretty much loners. Um, We both enjoyed learning. Um, We both were not particularly social, uh, and we embrace the competition. And at least in the era that I was here, Wharton undergrad was very, very competitive. Uh, the, it was uh, actually sort of shocking when I first came here the, to be in meet people 18 years old who knew what they wanted to do. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's a real shocker. Uh, he liked that. He wanted to top them. He's always been that way. Um, I would say in, in that sense, he was similar to me. Um, obviously, he had to take the core courses and all that, but the rest of it was all fiction. One of the things I'm quite proud of are the courses I made up <laughs> and the professors I made up. And people who've read the book, uh, including our illustrious dean, uh, said, where did this course come from with this one professor where he talked his way into it? It's a graduate seminar on investing. And the professor interviews the students, and he only takes 20. He's a very famous professor here. His name is Bates McNear, yeah. and uh, who by himself has a very interesting background, um, one that Wharton would embrace, I think. And he creates this course where he is a portfolio manager, and all his students are analysts. And there's no required reading other than the newspapers and the magazines, and he's very tough on everybody. And Rogers is the only undergrad in. I didn't have that opportunity. I don't know if I'd have talked my way into it or not. He actually played poker against the professor that worked his way in, which I thought was interesting. Um, But I think we both really found it challenging here. I think we both uh, grew up here. I was a Midwestern kid, uh, and... um, and I think it helped us both launch our careers. You may need to be careful. You may be walking yourself into teaching a course here at Wharton before, <laughs> before too long if you make those suggestions to Dean Garrett like that. Uh, let me ask you this. Why the aspects of gambling and baseball? Why, why were they so important to bringing this character forward? Right. Um, let's start with baseball. Um, I was a pitcher in high school. And, uh, and, and he wanted to be a pitcher. And the reason for that was when you start a game, you're standing out there by yourself. Uh-huh. The ball is in your hand. Yep. Everybody on your team is looking at you. Everybody on the other team is looking at you. Uh, and if there are fans out there, and if you go up in a place like Cincinnati, there are fans, um, nothing's going to happen unless you start it. It's very lonely when you're young. And all the responsibility, even though it's a team sport, you feel and you're trained to feel the responsibility is on you. He wanted to be good. 
He was smart. He was clever. He didn't have a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. Yeah. By the way, I didn't either. <laughs> Just to be honest, if we're going to be honest here. Um, if, if you did, we might be seeing you in Cooperstown, New York at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Right? I would love it. <laughs> I'd give back some of my performance at Charter Oak to do it. There you go. Um, so I think that's a theme that runs through the book as he, as he encounters the pressure of trying to achieve his road to independence. He feels that, and uh, he hearkens back to it. Um, now, gambling, uh, which is definitely a theme in the book, um, is in many ways, in my mind, similar to being a portfolio manager. It's all about risk management. Yep. Uh, when you run a fund, you have a certain amount of money to manage. When you're gambling with your own money, uh, in his case, he came from a very middle-class family. He didn't have much money. That's all he had. And he had to uh, manage it. He had to know when to quit. Uh, he had to have the, the discipline just to get up and leave. And he discusses that in the book. Sometimes he played for 10 or 15 minutes and he left. But he also had to un- enjoy the, mo- the momentum and the, the power of momentum. Um, also, you have to make decisions real time. You're sitting there and uh, you have to make them and you have to read the people at the table, which is in a way, I believe this part psychology is very important in the stock market. You come to a great place like Wharton, you learn the science of running money. You learn how to deconstruct balance sheets. You learn how to deconstruct cash flow statements and do all the accounting and uh-huh. so on. All of that's very, very important. I'm not underplaying it. But once you have that, you know, you don't go to the store and buy judgment. You have it or you don't. Yeah. And in the book, we call it the gift. You have it or you don't. And, and poker is a little bit like that, too. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and and so that's the reasons I use those metaphors through the book. Coming back to his experience at Wharton, uh, what are some of the qualities that Rogers has that you think business school students today should try to emulate, and why? Well, first of all, work ethic. Um, perseverance, for sure, because it isn't going to be easy. The same way doing well and excelling at Wharton is not easy. Um, you're going to have your ups and downs. Um, learning to be true to yourself and be willing to be different. I think here, too, just to regurgitate something back to a professor in the advanced courses isn't going to take you to the promised land. Uh You have to show some individuality. You have to be willing to be different. uh, And you have to believe in yourself, which is hard to do sometimes. Um, In his case, and I think here... You, it can't just be about money. It can't be, I'm coming to Wharton to get out of here. And, and some people use that phrase, which I think is an owner's phrase, by the way, to get out of here yeah. and make a lot of money. We all want to be independent. Money helps, of course. But in, in Roger's case, and I hope in mine, um, it, it wasn't just about that. Once you had enough, um, he's searching for what to do with himself. And uh, I did, too. I kept going. Um, I enjoyed it. I couldn't think of anything better uh, until this book came to me. And I've been thinking about that for a number of years. Uh, And in 2014, I returned all the money to my investors to write the book, which was, uh, you know, a little bit traumatic for me because I've known some of these people since 1967, if you can believe that. And I've been sort of ingrained in their families. What's that experience like? Because, I mean, you've obviously had a relationship for a long period of time with a lot of a lot of these people. And to kind of break that relationship, you mentioned how 
how hard it has to be for you. It was, and I took the, and we had hundreds of people. I actually took the step of writing the letter, uh, first preparing for it, yeah. and scaling back our portfolio so I wouldn't be a target. Yeah. Uh, and then I actually called every single one of them on the phone, a oh. telephone, not an email, a telephone. And uh, the responses were, in many ways, astonishing. Some of the people were that were, had been difficult. Don't forget, we had institutions. We had college endowments. We had pension sure. funds. Uh, were... Um, they could be difficult otherwise. They were uh, encouraging. They were pleasant. I had other people that had been with me forever, and it was all, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, what about me? And uh, I came up with a phrase, I'm not an indentured servant. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not. I mean, I, I, you paid me well, and I'm happy, and, uh, and uh, I'm here if you need me. Yeah. I, I, and I have told them that, and, and I still stay in contact with a number of them. But it was difficult to do, and it was difficult on the people in my firm. I found every, each and every one of them a job and kept some of the professionals to help me because I'm running as a family office in the morning and writing in the afternoons. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in studio with uh, Gerald Fine, who is uh, the author of a fantastic novel coming out uh, called Make Me Even and I'll Never Gamble Again. Also with me, uh, Knowledge at Wharton's editor-in-chief and executive director, Mukul Pandya. I, I wanted to go back for, to Rogers for a second and, and kind of that that unique skill set that he had growing up. Do you think that that gave him a kind of a unique advantage either going into Wharton or after Wharton when he's starting to head out into the business world? I think absolutely. And part of it came from his father. His father was a doctor whose speciality was diagnostics. And he taught him something that I've been trying to teach everybody who comes to Charter Oak, which is listen. Listen first. And when you ask questions, have have it... It's not the first question. It's where you're trying to take your knowledge. Each question should build on the next question. And yeah. it may take five or six questions. But once you ask the question, don't interrupt someone. Listen to what they're saying. And, and then have the courage to make a decision and, uh, and be willing to change your mind if you see you're wrong. But I think he got that. A lot of it from his father. They used to play one-on-one -on -one poker when he was a teenager. And uh, not for real money. Yeah. And he called it a gamble-a-thon, his father. And, um, but real time. And um, I think that does help you. Um, and it's, I think one of the things I was proud of in the book was the, when he went to the investment bank and brokerage firm he worked at, he was working for very, very top-rate people. And uh, his initial boss was is supposedly a genius, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. um, I've never met a genius. I, I know people who think they're geniuses in my business. Uh, <laughs> you know, luck is a good part to play with it. Uh, but, I, but I love that word, he's a genius. Um, and all my friends' children are geniuses, by the way. Right, of course. Mine aren't, but theirs are. Um, and, and they had some very good ideas that would have been extremely profitable had they act on them. Yeah, but they didn't. He did, and it got him in trouble. Be but he was willing to act, and a lot of people just can't do it. They just can't do it, and you know, make me even. They'll never gamble again. Will they gamble again? I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, one of the things I found really interesting about the book is when he graduates from Wharton, he goes to Wall Street, and I was wondering what the world of investment in finance looked like at that time. And and what transitions was it going through that made it possible 
like a disruptor like Rogers to be so successful. That's one of the reasons I picked the period that I did, uh, the 70s and 80s, because it was the time when um, the well-known established brokerage firms who were only hiring people based on their last name, uh, and they just sat there and expected the business to come in, um, they were ripe for being disrupted. And the Goldman Sachses of the world and the Morgan Stanleys of the world uh, taught them a lesson. And the lesson was hire talent, encourage talent, be willing to pay talent no matter what they look like, no matter where they come from, no matter what their last name is. And the firm itself was willing to take risk. Um, And they pioneered that and they prosper and they took share of market. And also it was the beginning of, I would say, stock picking money management. Before that, almost all pension funds and endowments were run by big banks. They all own the same stocks. And um, that was part of the downfall of the market in 73-4, where the average stock went down over 50 percent, 50 percent. Some hedge funds, like ours, took advantage of that. Rogers took advantage of that. He made money short bonds. uh, And he took the other side of it by making money long oil. Um, But when I first came into the street, you know, when we started to raise money for Steinhardt Fine Berkowitz, we traveled the country. We literally had to tell people what it meant to sell short. You're selling something you don't own. You're borrowing it. You know, how could you possibly do that? And, uh, and and you're willing to use leverage. We use leverage then. I, at Charter Oak, do not use leverage. But we did then. I think so it was, it, was a, it was a time that was ripe for change. And Rogers was the right one to do it. So what are some of the implications of Rogers' experience for uh, business school students today who want to go to Wall Street? I thought about that one a lot. I, I, I feel that the mistake that a lot of them make um, is they go there to make money. Um, back when I graduated from this great institution, I made $6,500, and my friends who were going into industry made $8,500. Tack a zero under that. That's I went into because I wanted to go into it. The firm I worked for only hired one person that year. I, I, I mean, they made a made a mistake, but they hired me. Um, <laughs> so often now, these the, the 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 kids are going in just wanting to make money, and they're not suited for this kind of endeavor because it can get very lonely and yeah. it's extraordinarily competitive and and you have to watch your back the whole time and maybe they don't belong there uh maybe they don't belong there part of it is also i think <laughs> in going through this uh the decision making process that all young adults go through men women whoever the person might be both personally and professionally and you kind of allude to it right there is that you have to be on point but you also have to be on on edge to make sure that you are you are taken care of. And I guess at times that professional and personal side, they intersect at times. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't know. I mean, I think getting the professional training is very important, but it's doable. It's doable. And as great as our institution is, is there are others also. So so you can get that. Um, And I've hired many people throughout the years. um, And the mistake I made was for a long I would always hire industry specialists, someone who came with, you know, a, a knowledge of an industry, and they were literally all institutional all-stars. But they had never run money. 
So it's a lot different to write a report, maybe a 25-page report, pontificating on a stock, giving them all the numbers, and saying it's a good buy. It's a different thing when you're working where you actually have to say, this is the time I'm going to buy. This is the time I'm going to sell. And this is how much I'm going to do. It's very different. And I saw them. They eventually learned. Uh But it took them. And these are experienced people in their 40s. It took them two, three, four, sometimes four or five years. And uh, I really don't know how you project why someone has the gift. And, again, that's a theme in the book. He has it. Uh, He doesn't know why he has it. He questions himself all the time, Dan. You know, how am I doing this? How am I even making decisions? Yeah. He wonders how he makes decisions. Is Am I that thoughtful or am I lucky? All he knows is he's got it. And uh, and he's going to run with it while he has it. But believe me, he's looking behind his back the whole time. I, I'm going to have you forward think for a second because obviously, as you say, you laid this book out uh, in the 70s and 80s. Roger Stout in 2018 would be what? Um, and he's new coming into the business, you mean? No, I, I would say starting in the business in the 70s and 80s. Oh, he's, and, an, old, he's an old man now. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and how would he – would he be a teacher? Would he be, you know, on a, on a deserted island somewhere? Where, what would he be? You're asking me the question that a lot of people are asking me to do, which is to write a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I don't want to do that right now. Right, yeah. Um, I honestly haven't thought that one through. I think part of um, what would influence him is somebody we haven't talked about uh, today, which is Charlotte. Yes. His yep. love. And, yep. and and she's a very different person, and she wants to cure all the world's ills. Yeah. And um, she doesn't care about money. And he needs her. She gives him a sense of balance. So if you ask me to project in the future, I would think that her influence on him would be very important. And if he's just going to continue to make money, she's going to find a way to do something meaningful with it uh, in, in a charitable way. Um, and um, and I think that would be probably where he'd go. Or maybe he'd do something different. At the end of the books, he says, I have a new idea. Yeah, I'm not sure what that idea is, by the way. <laughs> so I really am not. That's the sequel. There That's you go. the sequel. There you go. <laughs> Thank so, you. So do you. Do you plan to keep writing fiction? And if so, what will your next novel be about? I've already started the next one. Um, it is not a sequel, um, although the publisher is asking me to do it. It is not a sequel. Um, it's um, I want to be forthcoming, but I, I haven't told anyone about it. It's, uh, it's very personal. Um, it, um, it, it has nothing to do with Wall Street. It has nothing to do with gambling. It's just a very different book. It is a novel, um, and um, it's going to take me a while. What, what you said reminded me of a, a, a conversation I once had many years ago with uh, the late V.S. Naipaul. Uh, I ha- happened to meet him at a, an art gallery in Bombay, and he was working on a book, and I asked him the same question, what are you writing about? And he says, you know, I'm not going to tell you that, because when it comes out of me, it has to come out as a book and not as a conversation. And I just thought that was such a memorable yeah. answer. Yeah. The whole concept of writing is different. It's a very lonely enterprise. Sure. Um, in, in Wall Street, doing what I was doing, and uh, you're competing against everybody, and you're competing against the market itself, and you have to you have to wake up recognizing that it's like an athletic event, like you're walking out there with a baseball, if you yep. will, yep. Uh, for an important game. Uh, but writing, uh, it's just you, 
and looking at blank paper can be quite intimidating. Uh, when it's not going well, it's very difficult. When it's going well, it's, it's really exhilarating. But then I, I, w- I would guess then to a degree you have learned a couple of things maybe about yourself in doing this book because of the fact that you are doing a second book. Again, not you know a, a follow-up to, to this one, but you probably have uh, you know a, a, an attraction to this now more so than maybe you did you know, five, ten years ago. Uh, I would say that's true. I've always had stories in my head. I've just always had them. Even when I was a little boy, I remember we would, um, growing up in Cincinnati, we would, my grandparents lived in Florida. And it would take four days and three nights to drive there. And we had to drive through the mountains of Kentucky yeah. and to Tennessee. Radios didn't work. My father was still alive then. And he, we would alternate sitting in the front seat. He would do all the driving through the mountains. There were no guardrails, by the way. And uh, he would say to me, tell us a story. Tell me about the time you struck out Babe Ruth. <laughs> and, 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 you know, just whatever. And, yeah. I, and I would go on and on. When I would finish, you know, we, we, I'm still driving. Continue the story. How about Lou Gehrig? Did you strike him out also? Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. And so I've always had these. My problem has been discipline. And this book made me disciplined because I, once I started it, I, I, I knew I had something. I had to finish it. And that's what I'm, the way I'm approaching this next book. I'm going to be disciplined. Again, the book is Make Me Even and I'll Never Gamble Again. Uh, Jerry Fine, uh, the author of the book, uh, thanks for coming in and, and talking about the book. It's fantastic. And I can't wait for the second book to come out. And we'll have you come back again. Thank you. I enjoyed it. It's very stimulating. Enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.